Well, welcome once again to this special edition of Inside EMS. Kelly Grayson is on the EMS World Tour doing his uh, continuing education and sharing that knowledge with everybody around the United States. Even in this time of coronavirus, he is being selfless in teaching his knowledge. But uh, I am excited today to talk to you about, you know, the things that are happening with inside our career field. And, you know, one of the things that I think is going to be very, very important is we've got to be able to take best practices. We've got to be able to take experiences. We've got to be able to take the knowledge of people that are doing this work, because if we're not affected now, we will be affected soon. And being able to hear these best practices is something that we want to be able to utilize. And joining me today all the way from the great state of Colorado is Will Dunn. He is the clinical manager of Eagle County Paramedics, one of the leaders when it comes to community paramedicine in EMS. And a lot of times you don't hear about Eagle County and the work that they do, but they are one of the pioneers. And Will, I want to thank you for joining me on Inside EMS and sharing your knowledge about what's going on up there in the eye of the hurricane when it comes to coronavirus in the state of Colorado. Well, thanks, Chris. I appreciate being on. Um, I got to tell you, I'm not sure how we would have gotten to the point where we are without community paramedic. Uh, we've got a number of patients here that are essentially sick but staying home. Uh, we got patients that we sort of needed to test. Well, we needed to test uh, that really couldn't get to any of the testing centers or we didn't in the early days didn't want to bring them in anywhere because we weren't set up for them. So I, our community paramedics actually uh, stood up and took one for the team by uh, really putting themselves in uh, front of these patients to do swabs. So uh, community paramedic, we should call them the utility infielder paramedic because <laughs> that's really what they've turned out to be for us. Good. Well, let me take you through this process. I mean, your job as the clinical manager, I'm sure, is to develop the processes of how this thing is going to kind of flow for your state, flow for your system, flow for your community. But th there was probably a time, Will, where you were saying, okay, let's get ready for this before you finally said, oh my gosh, it's here. So if we kind of take it in a chronological order before you kind of got thrown into this mix, what were you doing to prepare to get your workforce ready to handle what was eventually coming your way? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was at a meeting at the um, at the state level. It's the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. has got a quarterly meeting that really drives a lot of what happens with EMS. And I got an email from my boss, Chris Montera, saying that we needed to fire up an uh, infectious diseases surveillance tool, emerging infectious diseases surveillance tool out of dispatch. So that was February 11th. I remember that day very well because I was like, oh, I guess we're starting to start talking about this. So that was the first thing we did. We had our medical director change the dispatch protocols to be able to start asking that question. And at that time, it was travel from China, uh, cough or fever. You know, it was really sort of broad. I'm sorry, specific. The um, that wouldn't do effect that that week, February 11th, 12th, sometime in there. We also started to tabletop with our supervisors to say, okay, what are you going to do with the 20% uh, loss of workforce, 30%, 40%? And that was sort of some of the uh, early things. Plus, we were trying to get some ideas of uh, what the treatment protocols would be or what treatment calls uh, protocols to avoid. For some of us who've been old enough to remember SARS from the early 2000s, you know, this, this, it was almost like, oh, we're dusting off the SARS protocols. And that is sort of what we started to do. 
So now, I mean, when you think about it, you know, you're just kind of going through the process. And I agree with you. I mean, we've gone through a lot of this. You know, we talk about Ebola when that happened in 2014. We went through the donning and doffing and how are we going to set our ambulances up to make sure we're not, uh, you know, causing cross-contamination. And I agree with you. I think that if you went through these pandemics or these you know, you even talk about even SARS, you talk about the bird flu and the swine flu and N1H and all these other things that really should have given us kind of a polish to preparing for this. But, you know, it's one of those things out of sight, out of mind, Will, that, you know, you don't really keep up on. But um, so now as you start to prepare, there was a time where you probably woke up to say, oh, my gosh, it's here. And we didn't even kind of snuck up on us. How did that happen? Well, you know, we were fortunate that we knew as a, uh, an international destination that there was a chance that we'd start to see it internally. Um, we stood up our uh, county EOC early. We, the hospital stood up its incident command system. We stood up our incident command system uh, really sort of virtually just to start out with this. Our command calls with the hospital started off a couple times a week, and then it was once uh, once a day um, during the, the work week, and then it was once a day, seven days a week, and now we're up to three times a day um, with our hospital partners uh, and the medical community, just so we're all on the same page. That probably was one of the best things that we did is we got some of those communication kinks worked out early. Like you can't have necessarily 60 people calling into the same 800 number for conference calls. You really need to use something like Zoom conferencing or Google Hangouts that give the option for people to join via internet versus uh, calling in on a phone number uh, because the systems just aren't designed to handle the kind of demand we've been putting on them. We've done, um, you know, we used to uh, joke that we would have a couple of big boxes in a basement somewhere that had SARS on it, and then that was crossed out, and then H1N1, and then that was crossed out, and then, you know, bird flu, and then that was crossed out, and then Ebola, and then that was crossed out. But we did have those boxes. And so when things really started to emerge, we were able to go through an inventory to be able to come up with what we had that was uh, available. We were able to put in orders early to supplement our uh, PPE. Uh, we were able to calculate a burn rate or a suspected burn rate on what that is. Uh, we know that at some point we're going to run out. Uh, we are very fortunate that we've got uh, connections with uh, a um, major uh, manufacturer of outerwear. And we were able to get in touch uh, through connections that we have because they uniform the, um, the largest ski resort company and be able to order some foul weather gear that we can use as reusable PPE. We came up with what the list was for that, and then we decided to double it. And so hopefully uh, we've got some strategies of uh, force multiplying our PPE. I got to tell you, there was a lot of great information in that answer. But one of the ones that I, I really want to kind of touch on and not gloss over, because I think it is uh, very, very important, is you said that the lines of communication were opened up early. And I think that that's one of the things, Will, that we forget in the time of, um, you know, these types of situations that we take it for granted that we're going to be able to communicate and get with the people who are uh, really kind of on our side or are going to be able to help us to deliver the highest quality of patient care or be the best resources to us. And, uh, you know, I've been in the situation a lot of times where we've hoped that communication was going to work. But as we know from our experiences, that hope isn't a strategy. But but it sounds like you've developed really kind of a, you kind of fell into almost the perfect storm that things really kind of worked out for you. 
Yeah, you know, uh, we were fortunate that we had a lot of like-minded people um, that between the county Department of Health, our county manager, um, the uh, public safety folks in the county, the hospitals, the hospital system, the largest uh, sort of group of family practice stocks, that group was purchased by the hospital about a year ago. So um, for it, we, there were lots of people that had to communicate, but we were able to sort of distribute and say, let's get the, the people that need to make decisions um, communicating frequently. It's, I mean, it's a burden. Uh, we, it's, um, there are some days where my first conference call, our command call internally starts at seven in the morning. Uh, we usually have a hospital meeting at eight and then the um, incident command call at nine. What we've just figured out, though, is that's sort of when everybody is scheduling their meetings at the top of the hour. And that's also something that's probably saturating capacity. So now we're trying to switch some of those meetings to start at odd times, sort of irregular times like 920 or 1050, something like that, because there's less of a, uh, um, a surge for people trying to communicate. So that's something that uh, I would certainly recommend that you consider. Um, but it's also, I've never been a part of any sort of large exercise or mass casualty or anything where one of the things that constantly comes afterwards was, well, this is where we broke down on communication. I mean, that seems to be the red thread in everything. I think that uh, we are fortunate that we got all the players, all the decision makers on uh, the same call. So um, we can make those decisions without having to, uh, we can move very quickly, allows us to be agile with that. And um, also we sort of stressed the system before the system got stressed as we were ramping up and figured out what changes we needed to make. Very cool. So now that you're into this process, you know, and you're starting to see, you know, patients kind of, uh, you know, pop in, you talked about the, you know, the community paramedics and them kind of being on the front lines. As you now start to see these patients, I'd be interested to know, you know, what's the one thing that you weren't prepared for that, you know, because it sounds like you, you tried to think of everything, but you know as well as I do in these situations, we don't know what we don't know, and we only hope that we've got the right uh, processes in place. What's the one thing so far that has given you some aha moments that you said, I didn't even think of that? So I think the biggest one is I underestimated the crew fatigue and the crew stress on having to, you know, PP up for all these calls. We do critical care interfacility, paramedics only. Uh, the first vent transfer that we did with a COVID, I think she was COVID positive at that point. Uh, we learned that that's really hard to do in your standard PPE. We went to Pappers for our interfacility on uh um, which was a big thing, but part of it is that's for crew comfort and crew um, mental fatigue. Uh, it's just I, I, I feel badly that we did not anticipate how significantly um, having the, the mental toll of putting yourself basically in a in the line of the COVID-19 fire on so many calls and uh, hoping that you're donning and doffing your PPE in a correct way as the clinical manager. Uh, you know, I took a lot of the stress of making sure from a safety standpoint and our protocols that we were doing everything um, as uh, safely as possible. But I think that uh, as a management group, we underestimated just the emotional toll. We think that it's absolutely critical that we're getting people home at the end of their shift. We do 4896s uh, here. Um, although we have done things that we've never done before, like cancel vacations and let people know that we may have to mandatory them to stay later. 
And again, we're sort of fortunate as an EMS agency that we have very low turnover and we have some scalability because of the seasonality of our work. But I, we're trying to avoid any at any cost having to hold people over, just letting them go home on their four day and just take their entire four day off. I don't know because I, I think we are a bit in the eye of the hurricane. I don't know necessarily um, how uh, if we're going to be what the longevity of that is. We may have to do some uh, different scheduling, but I think it's critical that people are getting downtime and time to take uh, off. You know, we're also seeing that we need to make sure that uh, their families are being taken care of. But, you know, dog walking, that type of thing. We're trying to make sure that the people who are off are uh, available to sort of support the people who are on. And that's helped a lot. You know, it does sound like you've kind of thought of the things that need to be worked out. And it's good to see that you're, um, you know, paying attention to that. You know, one of the things that's very interesting is that our EMS providers have a lot of things that they have stresses about. We talk about schedules. We talk about money. We talk about uh, all those things. But one of the things that's amazing, and I made this comment earlier today, Will, is that, you know, when we get into the fight of things, whether it's pandemics, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, civil disobedience, whether it's natural disasters, the people that we work with in our career field of some of the most dedicated and professional people that I've ever encountered in my career because they will go that extra mile. It's good that you're getting them off and it's good that you're, you know, kind of balancing that work-life balance while we can because if this thing scales the way we think it's going to scale, that may be few and far between. But truly, these professionals probably take a little bit of umbrage too to the fact of, well, I don't want to go home. I want to be able to stay and help out. Well, so, I mean, that's also uh, uh, an excellent point, uh, although um, we are – and that's true, and I think that if we asked our crews to step up, they certainly would. But we're looking at doing some other force multipliers. Interestingly, in this ski community, um, because the mountains are closed, the, large, the busiest EMS agency in Eagle County is Vail Ski Patrol, and they are shut down. Um, we were able to tap into their command staff and we requested that they pull all their medical gear. Uh, we did this with a number of the mountains, but Vail Ski Patrol is the one that's the biggest that's closest to us. Um, they were able to pull all their medical gear down off the mountain, inventory it and cache it. So that gave us a surge capacity of 50 oxygen cylinders, for instance. So we've tried to do which we're, we're trying to think ahead of uh, force multiplying. We've got uh, people that work for both Beaver Creek and Vail Ski Patrols and uh, Beaver Creek Public Safety that are uh, know our systems, know how to load our prams, know how to sort of generally where things are. We're looking at onboarding those just uh, so we've got some bench strength if we do start losing people so we can um, uh, essentially add to our street capacity if we have people that uh, can't come into work. So I think that um, we are trying to do things uh, to make it and, – and again, we don't know where this is going. It may be the largest unplanned training exercise of all time, uh, which I'll be fine with if it is. That's right. But if it's the hurricane, if we're going to see the category five um, hurricane, medical hurricane come in, um, I want to make sure that we're as staffed as well as we can. So people know that the at the end of that watch that they can go home. I think that's going to be what's going to get us through this so they can recharge, do whatever they need to do, come back in 48 hours later, 96 hours later, 24 hours later, what that whatever that is. But I think that it's huge that people know they can go home, at, that they're going to get a break. And I think that that's what I'm seeing in some of these other places where it looks really, really brutal. 
um, that uh, the the crew fatigue and the uh, emotional toll on our staff, we got to minimize any way we can. Yeah. And I want to be respectful of your time. I know you got so much going on, but just a couple more questions for you. When it comes to some of the patients that you're seeing, what are you learning from that? So it's interesting. These patients sometimes start off uh, relatively well. Um, they're sick. They might be a little bit hypoxic, but their oxygen demand continues to grow. Their hypoxic burden gets worse. So this is a patient that might do okay on a couple liters of oxygen for a couple of days, but then they get worse. And now they need to be uh, on lots of oxygen or innovated. The other thing that we've noticed, we RSI'd somebody that I thought was ridiculously early in his clinical course. And even though he was proper pre-oxygenated, his SATs just dropped like a rock. It was uh, impressive. Our crews noticed that. So we think that we see something where there's increased oxygen demand and early hypoxia with RSI. Uh, so that's something that I would be on the lookout for as you are uh, uh, potentially encountering these patients. The patients that need oxygen need a lot of it. And if you are in a situation where you need to RSI a patient, anticipate rapid desaturation. You know, we are, we've uh, got some telemedicine protocols in place so that there's the ability for our regular street crews and our community paramedics to assess these patients and advise them that they're, they're healthy enough to stay in their home for at least for the time being. The problem is that they can continue to get worse as they're hypoxic burden increases and their demands for oxygen increase. They might be okay on a couple liters of oxygen, but pretty soon they need a lot more oxygen. You know, we talked earlier on about community paramedics. How are you using your community paramedics in this pandemic? They're the utility infield of paramedics, I think I might have mentioned before. But, you know, they're doing test swabbing for COVID-19 patients so people don't have to come out of their homes. There, uh, there is no primary care going on in our county right now. There's no follow-up. There's no infant well-child checkups. So they're taking on an, uh, a burden of doing primary care for these patients that are no longer have access to our medical facilities because they are closed, at least for the time being. So there are uh, patients, potentially wound care patients, that need some sort of follow-up, but they're uh, not allowed into the medical facilities. And so our community paramedics are going out and seeing those. So they're doing uh, a lot. They're doing the community paramedic thing that they've always been uh, sort of trained and, and practiced to do. But the burden they have is increasing because they're seeing a lot of these patients in their homes that typically still would have gone in to see their doctor. We actually onboarded uh, some nurses that were on reserve from the hospital and we're trying to force multiply our community paramedic staff as well. I think one of the things that happens when we're in the middle of a disaster preparation such as this, uh, and I love how you said this, is this the largest training exercise, unplanned training exercise? Because I think that's really what it comes down to is we have to be able to prepare for something that may not even happen. Uh, and I keep my fingers crossed for everybody that's out there that that's the way it is. But from a provider standpoint, one of the things that I've realized in my career as an EMS leader is that sometimes the workforce doesn't know the challenges that the leadership teams have to go through in preparation for things like this. So, from, you know, but from your side, I think this is a time I want to educate them a little bit because, you know, I've learned a lot of lessons in my career, uh, whether it was communication, whether it was not having the things necessary. But from the leadership standpoint, talk to the providers who are out there and maybe give them some sense of what the leaders of organizations are going through right now to ensure that they have the best resources necessary to be on the front lines. 
you know, I think that we're trying to make sure that we have all the equipment uh, and the protective personal, um, P- the PPE that we're going to need for those uh, on the front line to do their job. I think that we need to have backup plans and that uh, we're, we're assuring that we have backup plans. So there is something in place to keep them safe if our primary plan of PPE runs out. I think that uh, you know we have gone through to make sure we've had arguments with our work comp provider to make sure that they'll be covered if this winds up being a work-related problem. Uh, we've gone to our board of directors. Uh, we've um, had uh, extra funds re- released and allocated for equipment purchases. Uh, you know we're we are trying to meet with um, the line-level supervisors and. Uh, to try and make sure that everybody's aware of what's going on. But there's so much of it that's behind the scenes that I don't know if we could ever properly communicate essentially what we do. I sort of started sending out um, a screen cap of my calendar for the day, which shows the, you know, 13 conference calls that I do. But, uh, you know, I can't, I don't recommend that every manager does that. But, uh, you know, sometimes that might give some perspective if you have a, um you know, if you have a, uh, a mechanism for sort of putting some of that stuff out. You, you sound like you've gotten to a point where you're prepared. So I think that there are people out there that are in different stages of where you have gotten to at this point. If you're going to kind of talk to those people that are out there, what's the best advice that you have for them to get them ready to handle what's going on or what's going to be going on in their communities? If you think you're overreacting, then you that probably means you're getting close to understanding what the potential of this is. And I agonized when I had the conversation with our ski patrol director about having him put people up on the mountain and bring all their medical gear down. Um, and then I, I, I asked him if he'd be willing to do it. He said, yeah, I think that's a good idea. We can do that. And then, you know, I thought about it for five minutes later and I texted him and I was like, ah, you know, maybe hold off. Maybe it's not time for that yet. He's like, too late. The, you know, emails out. We've already got it arranged. Stop overthinking it. And that was really good advice. I think it's just like, look, we need to make sure that, uh, that over there. I don't think there is such a thing as overprepared for this. And if I'm wrong, and again, I hope that I am. Fine. It was the largest unplanned training exercise we've ever undergone. The other thing is, this is the hardest thing I've dealt with in my career in the <clears throat> 30 years I've been doing this. Uh, here's what I'm uh, happy about is I don't think anything like this is going to come along again. That's going to be as hard as this has been. And if it does, we're even more prepared. It's not going to be as hard next time because of the lessons uh, that we're learning with this one. And I agree with you hundred percent. You know, the after action of this is going to be really important that we are in a position that we understand this as we go uh, forward in the future. So Will, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day. You know, we've tried to communicate for a couple days here and you're really kind of squeezing this in for us. And I appreciate you being a solid resource to the inside EMS listeners. And please promise us if things pop up that you think is going to be beneficial to our career field, just get back in touch, come back on the show so we can share your knowledge, share your expertise. Eagle County Paramedics continues to be a leader in our career field, and I appreciate you taking the opportunity to come and visit with us and share your expertise in this matter. Hey, thanks a lot, Chris. Come back anytime. 
And for everybody out there, I mean, a special edition here of Inside EMS, we're going to go ahead and start to bring you more and more shows and not just on our weekly basis because there are people like Will out there and his agency that are really on the front lines who are developing best practices that we may not have to develop. I want to thank Will. I want to thank the people up at Eagle County for continuing to lead by example. And if you have any best practices, go ahead and send them to us at the show at ems1.com. Please don't hesitate to answer on the Facebook page uh, below this link and tell us what's going on. But until next time, we'll talk to everyone again real soon.